Well, I thought I was going to be preaching today, so <laughs> took my lesson and doubled it, only to find out that Dr. T messed around and got well last night, I guess. But hey, Lord heard our prayers, right? So, so if this lesson comes to a brief end, that's why, because this is going to be a two-parter. I thought I'd rather do that than try to take 45 minutes and squeeze it into 20. So we'll just make it a two-parter. Well, today, we're currently lo looking at the doctrine of the church. And in particular, we're looking at God's uh, outward means of grace. These means of grace, as we have pointed out, are God's appointed means, or you could say instruments, by which the Holy Spirit enables the elect to receive Christ and the benefits of salvation. We've spent a few weeks making some general observations about means. And then we also spoke of the importance of faith in the use of these means. Now, while God's means include all of his ordinances, there is in the catechism special emphasis placed on the word, the sacraments, and prayer. So last Lord's Day, we began to look at the first of these three means, that being the word. And again, let me remind you, the purpose of this section is not to establish what the word is. We've already did that. We spent six weeks on the doctrine of Scripture. The issue now is, is now that we have established what the word is, what do we do with it? Now that we have established that God has revealed his will, which is necessary unto salvation, and he's committed it to writing, what do we do with it? How should we handle it? How do we approach it? How do we make practical use of it? And remember, this all stems from question 85 in the Shorter Catechism, which was, how do we escape the wrath and curse of God? To escape it, God required of us faith in Jesus Christ, repentance unto life, with the diligent use of all the outward means, whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption. And so God requires faith, repentance, and a diligent use of his outward means in order to escape his wrath and curse that's due to us because of our sin and our rebellion. Just want to remind you, that's what's, is what is at stake here. It's literally a life and death issue. You know, we don't invest the time that we do in the Bible so that we can learn how to argue with people on Facebook and show everyone how smart we are. No, we search the scriptures because as John states in his gospel, chapter 20, verse 31, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's the purpose. Making diligent use of the word in our lives is a means by which the Holy Spirit enables the elect to receive Christ and the benefits of salvation. So how do we make diligent use of that word? What does that look like? And the great thing about answering a question like that is that the word itself informs us of what we are to do. We're not left to the subjective opinions of men. God has revealed in that word what we are to do with the word and how we should go about it. And so today and next week, that's going to be our focus. The question of how we are to make practical use of the word corresponds to Shorter Catechism question 90. And there the divines summarize those responsibilities up for us very nicely. They say, how is the word to be read that it may be, 
that it may become effectual to salvation. Answer, that the word may become effectual to salvation, we must attend thereunto with diligence, preparation, and prayer, receive it with faith and love, lay it up in our hearts, and practice it in our lives. Now, I don't know how far down that list we'll get. I'll just keep an eye on my clock, but we'll begin, let's begin to unpack that. The first thing I want you to notice about this answer is that the divines use the word may. They say that the word may become effectual unto salvation. Now, I've made this point in an earlier lesson, but I want to make it again here today. God is the author of our faith. In John 1, we read, He came to His own, that is, Jesus came to His own. His own people did not receive Him. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Notice, Christ came to Israel. Some believed, some didn't. What, or you can say who, made the difference? Well, the power does not lie within man. Verse 13 totally squashes that idea. Those who believe are not born of blood. That is, they don't have any right to the kingdom because they're born into the right family or heritage. Nor are they born of the will of the flesh. That is, man in his fallen condition simply cannot will himself to be saved. We read in Psalm 14 that there are none who seek after God nor are they born of the will of man. That is because somebody's parent willed their child into the kingdom and made the decision. But rather, John says, they are born of God. Later on in chapter 3, John writes, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who was born of the Spirit. And in John 6, verse 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Well, if all human nature in its sin and misery can only produce just that, sin and misery. Salvation, on the other hand, is a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. And that's why I think the vines say here, may. Your use of the Bible may become effectual to salvation because ultimately that decision is left to God, not you. Now, should your response then be, well, if it's ultimately left to him, why bother doing anything? Well, the answer is actually very simple because these are the means that God has ordained. You see, God's sovereignty is not an excuse for us to neglect his means. Rather, his sovereignty reminds us that when we make use of these means, we better come to these means with a certain attitude, a certain frame of mind. We better come with humility and a dependence upon him. Isaiah 55, verse 1, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. 
And then in verse 6, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And then in Proverbs 1, starting in verse 22, How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you and I will make my words known to you. Because I have called and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one is heeded, because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you, when terror strikes you like a storm and a calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you. Then you will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek diligently, but will not find me. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. So you see, it's not simply that we make use of the Bible, per se. Many people make use of the word, but do it with the wrong attitude, for wrong reasons. I was just thinking recently, just on YouTube, this thought came to mind that, you know, if your main use of the Bible is that you can build your little apologetic empire on YouTube and parade around about how sharp you are, you may end up finding your use of the word to have been in vain. And it's all said and done. No, we come with a certain attitude, with a certain frame of mind. We come to humbly to submit to the purpose for which the scriptures were given to us. And that is what question 90 of the Shorter Catechism is about. So having now established that we are to come to the word with a certain attitude, a certain frame of mind, that we come in humility and in dependence upon God, what specifically does that look like? Again, the Catechism says that the word may become effectual to salvation. We must attend thereunto with diligence, preparation, and prayer, receive it with faith and love, lay it up in our hearts, and practice it in our lives. And so let's start to unpack that a little bit. First, notice the divine state that we must attend to the reading and hearing of the word. They are emphatic here. We must. There are no options here. Again, we cannot presume upon God. This is what God has commanded us to do, and so we do it. And to ignore what God has commanded and to do it some other way, because we want to pry into his secret counsel and things, we, you know, we can figure things out that we can't. But to just to do it our way and to presume that God will bless our way is the height of arrogance and folly. And we'll only invite God's judgment upon ourselves. Secondly, how must we attend to the hearing and reading of God's word? We must do it. How do we do it? And this is where things get real practical. The divines list a number of things here, so let's, let's start, begin to look at them. One, we attend to the reading and hearing of the word preached with diligence. Proverbs 8, starting in verse 32. And now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. 
Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. Here in this proverb, we have, as the Reformation Heritage Bible puts it, a remarkable revelation of the Son of God as wisdom. Wisdom is God's eternal offspring, not just his attribute of wisdom, but a divine person who is the living expression of divine wisdom, power, and righteousness. And what does this person say to us? Listen to me. Keep my words. Hear my instruction and be wise. Do not neglect it. And blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting besides my door, doors. Do not ignore wisdom. Do not avoid it. Do not go on living your lives as if wisdom does not exist and we don't have access to it. But rather sit at its doors, listening and waiting daily. See, that's diligence. And look, I don't know about you, but I want to be blessed. I don't want injury. I don't want death, ultimately. And yet here wisdom calls out and presents this very simple promise to us. You want to be blessed? Seek me daily. Joe Moorcraft writes, because believers crave the spiritual nourishment and stimulation of the word of God, they cannot get enough of the preached word. They order their lives and discipline themselves to make sure they are present when the word is preached unless they are providentially hindered. Beloved, do you apply yourself diligently to the reading and hearing of the word? Is that a top priority in your life? Or are you the type of person who will just look for just about any excuse to not attend to the reading and preaching of the word? Well, people who do that, Proverbs says, are people who injure themselves and love death. Next, the catechism states that before we even attend to the hearing and preaching of the word, we must come prepared and with prayer. You know, at one point in his ministry, Jesus gives the parable of the sower and then explains its meaning. He says in Luke 8, starting in verse 9, and when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God, the ones along the path are those who have heard, Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while and in the time of testing fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart, and bear fruit with patience. No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with jars or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Then verse 18, Take care, then, how you hear. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he thinks he has, will be taken away. See that Jesus said, take care how you hear the word. 
Pay attention to how you listen to the preaching of God's word. The, the good soil not only hears the word, but holds it fast in an honest and good heart. Why? Because it understands and appreciates the word for what it truly is. On the other hand, a love for the world will choke that word out. Unbelief will choke it out. So I ask you today, do you see and appreciate the word for what it truly is? Larger Catechism question 157 gets into this a little bit. It says, for example, that the Holy Scriptures are to be read with a high and reverent esteem of them. Proverbs 19, starting verse 7, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Beloved, do you go into the reading and preaching of God's word, esteeming that word with reverence, understanding the perfection of the word, the rightness of it, the pureness of it, and that there is a reward from it, greater than gold. The larger also states that we are to read it, quote, with a firm persuasion that they are the very word of God. Second Peter 1, starting in verse 19, and we have the prophetic word more firmly confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Again, as I was just reading this, I noticed again a little note from the Reformation Heritage Bible I like. It says, the Bible is even more certain than firsthand experience of Christ's glory, verses 16 through 18. And the testimony of God is more reliable than the witness of our own senses. Beloved, do you believe that today? Do you approach the reading and hearing of God's word with the mindset that understands just how absolutely necessary that word is, how reliable it is, how true it is, how pure it is, how right it is? Or do you come at it as a judge? Again, based on what I've seen on YouTube recently, I know this isn't a time for a long discussion about apologetics, but I'll just say this in short. I fear for those guys out there whose approach to defending the faith is not by starting with the word, but somehow think that they can reason to the word based on the reliability and authority of these arguments they're making based on their empirical, empirical evidences and so on. But I got news for you. God has established his word by his authority, not ours. And so when it comes to the apologetic methods, the question is real simple. Do you believe that word to be the very word of God or do you not? And if your response to that is, yeah, but you can't start with the Bible. You have to work people up to that. You have to reason to that. Then I say the same thing to you that our Reformed forefathers went on to say in answer 157, 
and that based on what Scripture itself teaches. They go on to say that the word is to be read with a high and reverent esteem of them, with a firm persuasion that they are the very word of God, and that he only can enable us to understand them. Again, here they are acknowledging the true author of salvation of our faith. In Luke 24, verse 44, then Jesus said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law and prophets, or the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He opened their minds to understand the word. And then in Acts 16, verse 14, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God and the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul and then 2 Corinthians 4 6 for God who said let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ notice the parallel at the creation of the world God commanded the light to shine out of darkness Solely by the power of his word. He said in Genesis 1-3, let there be light. And there was light. Likewise, God commands the gospel to shine in our hearts with a sovereign and irresistible life. And so again, I ask, do you come to the word with that reverence and that esteem? Do you come in humility with the frame of mind that Peter expressed in John 6? It says, after this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And so Jesus said to the twelve, do you, go, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know and that you are the Holy One of God. Peter said, there's nowhere else to go. There is no one else to turn to. Here, Peter is expressing the heart of a true and genuine disciple of Christ. And I ask you, is that your mindset with the word? Do you come with a high and reverent esteem of the word, with a firm persuasion that it is, it is the very word of God and that there is no one else and no, no thing else to turn to? And so we come diligently and prepared with a right frame of mind. Well, my clock is ticking, so we will end there. But again, uh, we'll go on to look at uh, prayer, uh, laying up the word in our hearts and making practical uh, and applying it to our lives. But in the meantime, uh, before we get to that point of you know, going through the rest of the list, again, just be thinking upon these things throughout the week. How do you, what is your mindset? What is your frame of mind when you read the word, when you hear it preached? And understand that there is a, a mentality, a mindset that we are to come to the word with. Reverence, esteem, understanding that it's the sole source of life. Uh, and that this is the means that God uses uh, to bring us to Christ and to bring to us salvation.